most importantly, spoilers, he hooks up with Joel Kinnaman, and that is far and away the most essential plot point in this movie. Joel who? Kinnaman. Joel who? Joel Kinnaman. Joel who? Edgerton? Edgerton. (laughs) Joel Edgerton. (laughs) We have a cold open. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bowlet. Uh, it is me, one of your co-hosts, Zach. Uh, I am here with Nate. Hey. And Chris. Hi, I'm trying to get a hair out of my eye. Great for this audio <laughs> perfect, medium. Yeah, perfect for podcasting. Good content. Uh, and this episode, uh, a much delayed episode, is one where we talk about colors. Not as in cinematography, but as in movies with colors in their titles. Because, oh boy. <laughs> because that is how our podcast works. Uh, Very creative. So this came about with um, both me being someone who harps on the color palette of a movie every single time I watch a film. And also The Green Knight was released a couple weeks ago. Um, and I wanted to shoehorn it into an episode. Um, so we picked six movies... For this episode, uh, the aforementioned Green Knight. We also have David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Uh, we have um, Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. Tony Scott's Crimson Tide. Jack Arnold's Creature from the Black Lagoon. And Rennie Harlan's Deep Blue Sea. Really the people's Deep Blue Sea, if we're being <laughs> honest. Uh and those movies have literally nothing to do with each other, other than the fact that they have a color in the title. You could draw some connections. Uh, there's well, some Arthurian nature to... And water. You know, deep yeah, blue sea. Right, yeah, right, yeah, I was going to go with deep blue sea. <laughs> yeah, terrible things that happen in water. We, yeah. When we were picking these movies, I remember, like, okay, we can't have nine submarine movies. Well, so. yeah. We can't have nine red <laughs> submarine <Yeah>. movies. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, Hunt for Red October was another one that we seriously considered. Yeah, it's going to kill the joke if we keep going because it's really just that in Crimson Tide. So, yeah, uh, I don't really know how to lead into this. I would, you know, because The Green Knight is such a movie, uh, the one that we kind of, like, based this it's, episode around. It's such a movie. A movie. <laughs> uh, is has such a artistic style and it is very clearly going for a bold color, you know, motif throughout and um very challenging to watch it sometimes like camera angles and lighting setups that it really is more of a you know, it it's less of a story and more of just like a collection of short stories i wasn't terribly familiar with the whole arthurian legend behind it um i don't know if either of you are big uh arthur buffs um, yeah i've never read that. the once in future king i don't know if our schools required that um i, I know so. i know a bunch of people who have had to read that and i know lexi's a big uh, arthur fan but the tv you know, shows <laughs> yes 
I, I was. I'm picturing fairly... the Arthur meme with him in chainmail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was fairly unfamiliar with uh, with this, aside from having seen Sword in the Stone 25 years ago and uh, the random Kira Knightley King Arthur movie from like 20 years ago or whatever. Um, yeah, that was a weird one. So. Yeah, this came in came in pretty blind on this, and uh, oh boy, did did I love it! <laughs> good good stuff. Um, would would watch again. Would recommend. Did we all see this yeah. in theaters? No, mm. I saw it on a screening. I did. gotcha. Oh, you did the virtual screening, right? Because eight twenty four. Oh yeah, Nate got mad at me because I didn't get tickets because we were supposed to watch it together. Yep. But did I my trust? Did I watch it with Dave? Yeah. Um, so, so Chris and I, we saw it on a big screen, the way you know the Lord intended. Um, and <laughs> Nate, did you watch it? And holiest. Did you watch it on what a thirteen-inch laptop with? Uh, 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 I I believe that was it was a thirteen-inch laptop or it was an iPad. It's one of the two, as the Lord intended. Uh, I mean, yeah, holds up. Still, still, totally works. You know, it's it's a different experience. I I think because of where I've lived for a while, um, I, a lot of my movie watching for, for a good chunk of my life has been sort of on non-theater screens. And so that, I think what I go into movie viewing looking for, oftentimes, like, I, I my, whenever I hear the, the, you know, the tropes about the, you know, oh, it, this is best seen on a big screen, it's intended for this, like, I, that, that totally resonates in certain ways. And also... Um, that's not the main thing that I derive my sort of movie viewing from because so much of my experience with movies has been on smaller screens, whether it's a TV, whether it's things like that. So, um, so I, I have an interesting relationship with stuff like that. And I feel like in certain cases, like uh, something like this, where the cinematography is of, of such a high bar, it totally translates. And I'm sure it would be even more grandiose on a bigger screen, but it doesn't sort of hit in the same way. There are certain movies that I think can kind of get away with being subpar because of the grandiosity that sort of shows up when it overwhelms you on a big screen. And Shots at Malik. On the, yeah, right. Um, but it just, like, certain things don't translate in the same way, and I get that's, that becomes an intention versus a, a sort of experiential thing. But um, but it's definitely come up for me with, with certainly through the pandemic and, and in other cases, and I feel like oftentimes the stuff that is of the highest bar still rises to the top, even if it's a different experience seeing it on a big screen. Yeah, I very famously saw Dunkirk on a seven-inch uh, screen on the back of a, an airplane seat. So, uh, still yeah. still ranked it as my like number three movie of that year. Yeah, because yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, I uh, I watched The Martian, uh, Gravity, and Interstellar on one uh, transatlantic flight. So I also can't talk. Also, th- those are movies that probably fall a little bit more into that camp of having not seen Gravity. I, I can't speak to that one. The other two, I think, uh, the the spectacle of them is a huge component of what makes those sort of successful films. And when you take them out of that, then you have to focus on you know logic and plot. And all right, and let's let's not character. get bogged down in in uh, Nolan talk. Interstellar sucks. Okay, moving on. Um, so yeah, so this is a loose adaptation of um sorry what was the the actual name of the story chris you uh, said it earlier 
Sir oh, Gawain and the Green Knight, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's I, is it from Once in Future King collection? Is that like I I do not know. It's a it's it's the it's a poem. Uh, it's a it's a like 14th century poem. Is is that I don't know if that's in the Once in Future King. I don't either. Yeah. Great. We're not so scholars we're very on this. Smart. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh so this movie follows Dev Patel as uh, the as Gawain who um gets challenged who is kind of just a rapscallion uh more or less at the beginning of the movie and is challenged by the green knight uh takes up his challenge and then has to return one year later um to receive the same blow that he gave the green knight uh and in that time a bunch of weird shit happens and it's filmed all pretty like and uh, but mostly most importantly Spoilers, he hooks up with Joel Kinnaman, and that is far and away the most essential plot point in this movie. Joel who? Kinnaman. Joel who? Joel Kinnaman. Joel who? not his name? Edgerton? Edgerton. <laughs> Joel Edgerton. We have a cold open. Uh, <laughs> so I, I tried to explain this plot to my dad, who also wasn't very familiar with it, and... Uh, we got to the point where I uh, informed him that Gawain takes the head off of the Green Knight. Spoilers. Um, that's not really the whole... Uh, it's I feel in, like the in the trailer. trailer. <laughs> um, where my dad said, okay, that doesn't sound like a problem. Like, how does he deliver the blow back a year later? Uh, and the Green Knight picks his own head up off the floor <laughs> carries it out of the dining hall. <laughs> dining hall? It's a hall where they dined. It's the round table. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of round. No, it's the round yeah, table. It's the round table. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag not a scholar. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so this movie is pretty plotless isn't the right word, but the plot can be described in two sentences and it feels, you know, very much like a story that meanders and has side quests and he meets interesting characters. It's vignettes. It's yeah, it's it's like a vignette. It's have you ever played like a really good video game? Yeah. Uh, Tiger Woods Golf 2003. Yeah, it's like that. Super Smash Bros. I was thinking 64. Cool Borders. Yeah. Sick. We just did All right, back to movies. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it it shows Gawain, a, a guy who has very clearly never lived up to what his potential should be. He's shown at the beginning of the movie drunk in a brothel. Whining and wenching. Whining and wenching. Um, and and he kind of is... He expects all the heralds of a knight without giving any of the effort. And that is kind of the big theme throughout that, you know, touches all the vignettes is him just kind of expecting greatness to happen to him because he deserves it rather than doing anything to earn any greatness. Um, and that is like the one main thing that I picked up while I was watching. And it's like, oh, Dev Fidel's kind of a, a shit dick this whole time. Yeah. You know, Definitely. like 
he's he whines he doesn't give like the people who give him directions any money he asks for a favor in return for doing a simple you know task he's, he's just kind of an ass but because he's dev patel and he's such a great actor you're still rooting for him and it creates this like weird mental you know like wait do i like this guy or not which i think oh, is the main yeah. point of you know, definitely experienced a lot of that uh I, and i think it was the same kind of thing where i got like a certain amount through the movie where i was like huh D- like have i just been reading this wrong the whole time uh and especially especially when you get toward the end and there's kind of like a faint toward one ending and I had to like relitigate in my head how I had watched the entire film beforehand, preparing myself for this ending. Going like, wow, like I think I may have just like watched this movie entirely incorrectly because I I liked this guy and now maybe I fucking shouldn't have at all. Um, well, it's the it's the delineation between a protagonist and a hero, right? Which I yeah. think is kind of the core principle of the film and and kind of what they're whether they're litigating it or whether they're just kind of like tossing that question on the table for you to unpack. Um, that's the whole idea is he thinks because he is in a position of power, he is a hero when he's actually just the center of the story mm-hmm. and a shit dick. Um, and, and the moment that depending on your read of the ending, however you want to interpret it, because obviously this is not a sort of codified. Here's exactly what happened ending and there i think there are various interpretations of it but depending on how you want to interpret it the moment he becomes a a hero is the moment he actually sort of submits to getting the blow returned whatever that ends up manifesting like that's the transition and and he doesn't really do anything prior to that he has moments of goodness and moments of cowardice and moments of sort of shifting back and forth because he's inherently a complex character but he doesn't really have a full sort of willingness to sacrifice himself for the sake of honor or something like that, which, you know, is so central to the, to the text, um, until the last moment. And you don't even know if he does, like yeah. you don't know if that's what ends up happening. And that's probably the thing that I love the most. And the fact that their way of demonstrating that to you is not just the, like the, the, here are the two paths and he chose one, but the, you get to see the full, like, unfurling of what that decision would cost and what that decision would ultimately lead to and have to unpack the fact which i think is is what helps a story like this kind of resonate well beyond its sort of medieval connotation like what uh what difference does it make if he lost his head then or 60 years later after all the people around him had died these horrible deaths and had gone through all this stuff and he just got to survive that much longer like does that time actually make a difference if he wasn't living it in an honorable way and that is a concept and their way of depicting it i think is such a brilliant construction for um modernizing a text like this that is uh so easily kind of locked in the past and not accessible in the same way in a society where like honor is not nearly as significant a concept or as central a concept as it was sort of in the time that the stuff was written at least nominally yeah, good stuff, Nate. <laughs> no, I mean, it. 
you kind of see that shown out in you know in all of the interactions especially with um uh the like lord and lady section with alicia vikander and joel edgerton um where the first joel thing who? <laughs> kinnaman joel, joel kinnaman famously uh, of suicide squad <laughs> um where the first thing he agrees to when he stays there is anything that happens to you here, you do you give to me at the end. And it's kind of like a weird, like, all right, man, cool, whatever. You know, where he takes on a, you know, a, an agreement and a pact without thinking about it. And then at the end when he realizes, like, oh, shit, I acted dishonorably and, like, you're kind of calling me out on it, he just kind of runs away. You know, and it and it's a pretty, pretty stark showcase of where his, his like moral core is at that moment in the film, where he never expected to have any sort of, um, like any sort of actual requirements to do any of this shit. He just expected it to be bestowed on him because he was the one who slain the knight, um, and you know. I guess he got one big old smooch from Joel instead of a uh, spoiler and, and one one very un- seemingly uncomfortable handy. <laughs> yeah. Um the that that hand job had very strong uh Jack McBriar energy yeah. from forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> no. God, God yeah. put our mouths on our faces for a reason. <laughs> Um, and then I, I think the other one that, that really stood out to me is, is retrieving the, the woman's head from the, the water. Yeah. And it, it seems kind of like a, a creepy walks upon a house, finds this woman, she asks them like, can you retrieve my head? And you don't really think about like how weird it is because it kind of fits within the world. And then when he asks, like, oh, can you do me a f- I forget what he says in return, but he's like, can you do me a favor? And I think her response is, how dare you ask me that? Or something like that. And you're like, oh, shit. Like, this I guy th- has no idea how well, to behave in any of these search- like situations. I think she asks him to get the head, and he says, well, what's in it for me, basically? Yeah. yeah. What, what, what are you going to do for me if I do that? Yeah. 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 Um, and and that was one of the moments where it like really clicked for me about how I viewed Gawain as a character. Yeah, you know. I think another thing that I uh, that really worked for me with this is like this type of storytelling when they when the the mysticism of it is um, less so. I mean, there are giants. There's a talking fox. There's like. Stuff's on Front Street. And at the same time, I think a lot of the mysticism is a little bit more askew and a little bit blurrier. There's not as clear a, like, you see his mom, uh, Morgan Le Fay, like, casting a spell somehow in advance. But you don't see what that immediately translates to. And you kind of see how its echoes through the rest of the film Mm -hmm. with the sort of presentation of the Green Knight. There's never a clear answer given about it. The same thing with Winifred with... uh, I think that's that's the name of the the lady without the head yeah. where like there's just these kind of quick jumps between what form she's in and what happens and then despite her response being like that uh, like how dare you ask me that he then ends up getting the stuff that he lost back immediately after that quest with no explanation of it there yeah. are all these sort of like um kind of abrupt changes that that 
by not explaining fully what's going on, you heighten the unreality of it while allowing it to stay grounded in a way that you wouldn't if you were like the spell she cast caused this yeah. to happen and you or you saw the magic fly from man you know what i'm really happy like, didn't happen is just a voiceover being like and that's exposition. when i left the yeah <laughs> yeah uh Hard yeah pass. really glad we missed out on exposition dumps there was like mild exposition in the lord and lady parts but it wasn't yeah. super explanatory of what was going on it was still very surrealistic with uh you know like you were saying Nate, but pretty hazy logic going on where you don't yeah. really understand what's happening like alicia vikander is is playing two, two characters yeah. and yeah. it's never explained um, she and, is and lady usually, usually with some type of like that felt like such a clear um despite not being fully articulated felt like such a clear sort of manifestation of like oh he th- he can't get this person who he was with out of his head so he sort of puts it onto this other person and like that's how he's seeing this other woman but then when he returns home he's thinking of her as the other like there's sort of this superimposition that's happening and it's just a literalization of that in a way that i think is really compelling yeah. and is all the more compelling when it's not fucking spelled out for you though i will say if you were ever to have voiceover and narration and movie either having Ralph Innocent or having Sean Harris do it would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. So they got the cast for it and yeah. they just didn't really need it. Yes. Uh, but so far as the, the kind of like hazy logic of it goes, I think that kind of heightened my enjoyment of it, especially on first watch when you really don't know what's possible and what's going to happen as he's yeah. going along this path. And that kind of ups the tension. Cause I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Like some, something, fucking terrifying could happen like him getting jumped by some uh some robbers and uh, Barry Keoghan yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, so I, I really I think rewatches are going to be interesting for kind of parsing through my feelings on the characters and kind of interpreting what that ending means uh first watch also really rewarding for that reason um and I mean the, the other thing that was just like super apparent from the start was just this is some of the best cinematography and just wild get wild. out of here yeah it's uh the focus kind of moves from that a little bit as as the story moves along but definitely kind of returns to that toward the end it kind of bookends it with some really really awesome like artsy shots and i mean countryside uh with fog is like one yeah, of my favorite that, aesthetics that, that's so the, that's the scene the, the like post battle when he's yeah. walking through and he first meets barry Keoghan. yeah the dp was uh andrew draws uh palermo who i i don't know that i've seen any of their work previously um at least not not that like that's not a name that jumps out i was on my ass from that i mean just like absolutely gobsmacked by he, how good this movie looked he also did a, a ghost story Okay, that makes sense, which I haven't seen. I, haven't I also seen haven't that. seen that. Is that... Uh, yes, it's very it's good. 2016, is that for... Se- 17. 17, I think. Okay, yeah, we'll, it's we'll also David Lowry. It's the same guy. Yeah, right. Um, so, uh, before we move on, so did you think that the the feign at the end worked? I It, it upped it a half star for me. Yeah. Yeah, excellent stuff. I thought, it was a, I thought that it was genuinely a perfect ending to the movie. 
Yeah, because with with those they can be cheap or they can work. You know, and I feel like in this kind of medieval poem fairy tale, it really worked um, because it fit with the kind of mysticism of how the story was going naturally. It feels cheap when it's like a fucking rom-com or something and they just want to pull your leg. But this seemed like... Uh, As as apparently the highest one on La La Land, I'll push back on that slightly. (laughs) But I I do think... I, I, I don't know that... For me, the delineation isn't as clear by genre. It's more when there's a commitment to like the... um when they can evoke the emotion of you really getting a glimpse into what this path leads to and the emotional investment in that, not just like here's everything would have been good, but like a true like manifestation of, Oh, this is what like uh, this type of spiral that you can go into when you think about your life, if you made a different choice at one point or another and, and really following that rabbit hole all the way down when a movie can convey that type of emotion and that type of um, whether it's, whatever combination of relief or comfort or sadness or nostalgia for a thing that didn't happen, like that's such a specific emotion that's so powerful when it's done right. And when it's not just like, and here's the other option. Yeah, exactly. I I feel like that's what they nailed here was like, it felt like you lived this life and it felt like you got to see all the weight of what would happen if this dude had just survived. Um, Not to say he didn't survive at the end. We don't know, but it, it was, that's such an interesting, like, way for that to play out um, I, I, and to then I think, just reverse course on it yeah I think I think mentioning weight is really important because it's not just that it's different it's that it's like emotionally weighty and and challenging at the same time so yeah yeah um, so Nate uh, one more question um, do you also not take your belt off when you have sex or is that just him <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny, but we can, we can check in with her next time she's on the pod. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, too, like Gawain, wear more of a sash than a belt. So, <laughs> Yeah, it. I kind of forgot that in the middle it just gave him full, like, like free from harm kind of thing. And so yeah. when he refused to, to take it off during sex, I was like, what? Well, come on. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> so your head falls off. So my some people are into that. <laughs> so my uh, the biggest misdirect for me, other than the ending, was the uh, Joel Edgerton thing, where yeah. I thought since the thing that he took from her was the sash or the belt or whatever the hell we want to call it, uh, yeah. that he, that's what he was asking for. Uh, when really he just wanted a hand job. <laughs> yep. But all he got was a big old smooch. <laughs> I audibly guffawed in the uh, in the theater, um, and I'm I was very worried that the people around me uh, took that as a hot gay instead of uh, <laughs> like a super surprise that <laughs> that was what happened, but. Uh, I'm still here. So. Yeah, is that the most shameful hand job in recent movie history, or are there other <coughs> ones that are? Uh... It's high on the list. I'm trying to oh, what are run s- down the database of of <laughs> yeah shame shame handies. 
Um, uh, th- Nympho- Nymphomaniac had a bad Ooh, one. Uh, Pilot of Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, technically, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. True. Oh, that's that's true. Yeah, that is true. Uh, well, I guess we found our we next get a starting episode. five. Of, yeah, starting <laughs> five of shame hand jobs. That's cool. your next m- m- music movies and hoops article. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just creating uh, content for uh, all of you. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> uh, I almost just choked on my drink. Uh, all right. All speaking, right. Speaking of shameful sex, let's talk about Blue Velvet. Uh, <laughs> Oof. So uh, I want Nate to lead this off, but I will say I was um, I was taking an Amtrak back from Amherst, <laughs> Massachusetts, to New York, and I needed to download a movie to watch, and I had between this and The Color Purple, which is coming up, and I asked these two for advice, and. Uh, I think it was what, Chris, you said that uh, the Blue Velvet was famously erotic? Yes. And I probably <laughs> should not watch that on a train? Was so, I wrong? No, uh, so thank you for that. Um, so, Nate, go ahead. Yeah, so Blue Velvet, the uh, David Lynch, uh, it was, what year was that? 1986. It's a neo noir. Um, film featuring Kyle MacLachlan and Isabel Rossellini and Dennis Hopper, who is famously Frank Booth um, and uh, <laughs> Laura Dern, um, and uh, and it is um, at the risk of, as is the case with anything David Lynch uh, associated, but a completely missing the mark with it. Uh, it is a film about a. A young man who goes and stays back in his hometown, I believe after college or maybe during college or some time around then, uh, and hits it off with a lady from home, but then stumbles onto a sort of what appears to be a kidnapping and or murder mystery and uh, gets sucked down a deep rabbit hole of uh, uh, problematic sex and uh, drug dealing and murder. And uh, it's pretty wild. Um, this was my third Lynch, I believe, um, after Twin Peaks and then Mulholland Drive, um, which was an interesting order to do it in because I think a lot of people think of this more as like the urtext of, of yeah. Oh uh, no, no, you've you've also Lynch. watched it, you've watched well, one that's more Lynch. fourth. That that was fourth. Yeah, no, that was fourth. Coming the fuck up. I, I got um, a couple minutes into that one. <laughs> I didn't actually finish it. Oh, what is wrong with you? It wasn't. It wasn't a by riveting. Choice. Just like other riveting. stuff going on, you know. One I of just... the best movies I've seen all month. Um, <laughs> uh, so a lot of times, I think this and Eraserhead are kind of you know thought of as. Um, it's the Elephant Man like, too, right? Is this... Oh yeah, the Elephant. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, those are those are. Um, Let's just name his whole filmography. Yeah, cool. Uh, Doom. Wild, wild at uh, heart. <laughs> yeah. um, but Blue Velvet, um, coming to it in this order, it was an interesting thing because I think in certain ways, this is, I think, more akin to um, where where Mulholland Drive derives some of the more out there uh, components from, the, uh, it derives some of its uh, content from the more out there components of Twin Peaks. This feels like a blueprint for some of the more grounded aspects of Twin Peaks. The more sort of like uh, 
uh, boots on the ground murder mystery in a small town with lots of sort of characters type vibe. Um, and so it was interesting to kind of have those different uh, foundations coming into this film that by comparison in certain ways felt weirdly more sort of like grounded and stable, even as it was probably the most unhinged and fucked up in terms of its like the, the actual content that's there, but it felt less surreal and, um, and sort of unhinged uh, than Mulholland or than the sort of most out there parts of Twin Peaks. Yeah. There, Um, there are a couple of moments that kind of remind you, the totally. who the who the director is like there are a couple cuts cutbacks to uh Kyle McLaughlin's dad where he's just kind of like I don't know like weird kind of dream sequence kind of stuff and I mean it starts with the zooming into an ear you know right it's a lot a lot of it is the aesthetic choices like things like that like the zoom into the ear the the musical choices and cues uh the the I have some fun cin- facts about that I'll come back to it though Great. The uh, the cinematography and specifically in like the sex scene with Isabella Rossellini, um, the one of the sex scenes where there's like a lot of sort of uh, um, you get sort of like a, a pastiche of like lots of different versions of what's going yeah. on. And it seems like it's refracting like things like that. Those choices that like another director just would never think to do. Um, so it, it was just interesting to see sort of David Lynch reflected in this narrative structure in a, in a narrative structure that was a little bit more linear that was a little bit more direct even as it sort of approaches the end and you start losing the thread a little bit um but yeah i'm interested what you guys thought about it uh what what's wrong with dennis hopper a lot Everything. of drugs a lot <laughs> a lot of drugs famously frank booth <laughs> the fact that this dude saw the treatment of the script it was like no 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 I know what drugs in the canister. <laughs> like that's the wrong drug. I know the drug. Tells you most of what you need to know about that dude. Yeah, I, re- I read this uh, kind of like oral history that David Lynch himself kind of dictated, and the my biggest takeaway was that Dennis Hopper had to play Frank Booth because quote I am Frank Booth, <laughs> which <Ew>. is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, pretty fucking Something tough. Something you never want to hear. Um, but the other thing I dug up, which was uh, in relation to the music, is we uh, never would have gotten, possibly never would have gotten this uh, all-time pairing between director and, and musical director between David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti if not for Isabella Rossellini learning the wrong version of Blue Velvet for this <laughs> film. <laughs> so, uh, basically, they had, uh, I guess, Fred Caruso, one of the people working on the film, was uh, suggested to David Lynch that they have somebody write a new song with some lyrics that he himself had penned because it just wasn't going to work otherwise. And uh, there was like a back and forth between David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti. And uh, he didn't like it at first, but now seems to have arrived at the fact that, uh, you know, pretty good stuff from that guy. Cause they have continued to work together to this day. Yeah. I mean, this movie is, this is also the second David Lynch movie I've seen um, with Mulholland being first. 
And it, it, Nate, like you're saying, it does feel a little bit more grounded, which is fucking weird for this movie to be the more <laughs> grounded one. Because um, there are so many scenes that are just, like, the scene where Isabella Rossellini discovers Kyle MacLachlan in her apartment, that whole scene is like, tw- it feels like 45 minutes long. You know, intentionally long and Speaking drawn of, out. of shame hand jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> long and drawn out and weird and shameful and kinky and um and voyeuristic it's it's just weird in every single way but at the same time it it fits within this world that David Lynch has created where there's this kind of seedy world with uh, these two characters and then Laura Dern plays this like angelic you know uh, model of the suburbs, which is really portrayed early on and at the closing of the film, this like, you know, pristine 1950s suburb with the Dalmatian riding in the the fire truck and, you know, the veneer of perfection and then the seedy underbelly under it. And it, it, it just works so well. And it turns out this David Lynch guy knows what the fuck he's doing. Yeah, he sets the tone from the jump with that opening scene with the with the hose and like the weird uh whatever medical thing happens to him but um also his his own dog sparky uh acting in the film uh excellent stuff attaboy Um, spark uh who david lynch called the love of his life um which why not tough look yeah for (laughs) all romantic partners of david lynch uh aren't there many yeah, uh, famously, explains a lot. Can you imagine marrying David Lynch? No. <laughs> I mean, the man cooks a good quinoa. So, coming up next. <laughs> um, anything more specifically that either you two want to point out? Um, I, I think the the two things that I think are are worth noting about it. One, I think tethered to what we were talking about with the green knight is that uh willingness to lean into a lack of clarity um as a as a narrative device right the uh the willingness to kind of leave certain things unresolved or to you know bring us to that final sequence where he's like uh he comes into the apartment and the yellow man has been shot and her husband has been shot but we don't actually know who shot who and how that happened and there's and that's just lingering and it it's never totally clarified and that is uh within a you know very sort of like over the top over dramatized sort of sequence like that's how something like that could bear out where you wouldn't know all the pieces of information and having all those pieces of information given to you or having a character strategically like in the room when anything important happens oftentimes feels unrealistic and so his willingness to have moments like that where like a very significant moment in the plot is left at least partially to our imagination um, helps, I think with audience investment and, and with making you feel like you're a part of the sort of discovery of the story and not just having stuff fed to you. Um, Yeah. And I I think, I think also a really good thing that, I mean, this kind of lays the template for a lot of the things, a lot of themes that Lynch will use later on where, you know, Zach, you mentioned kind of idyllic uh, suburban things and, maybe not so suburban but he loves putting like the all-american stuff like setting things in a diner and then some really like surrealistic 
things like uh, weird musical venues with uh, red curtains and yeah. and shit like that. So yeah, I'm just like all time. He's got a he's got a color thing. All time vibe curator. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this definitely uh, vibes. Um, and sometimes weirdly. Yeah, you know who I don't vibe with? Frank, Frank Booth. Fucking Booth. <laughs> a fucking monster. Yeah, the um what's he huffing in this? Uh he uh what uh it's in that it's in that clip that you you sent cuz yeah. this was the thing that I think they had the wrong drug initially. Yeah. But um, just because it was supposed to be the, helium. Yeah, the visual of that is so incredible for his character. Yeah. You know, just just taking like deep deep drags like pushing the mask into his own face and pulling and like yeah. then changing into a different person. It's just like it it's terrifying. Yeah. And yeah. and Dennis Hopper in this is is unreal. Um pretty as, wild introduction as, of as character. just like rage personified almost yeah um, and i i do think obviously there's a conversation to be had about the the sexual politics of a film like this and of the impact of sort of depicting trauma in this way um and in the spirit of uh our podcast long history of the three of us not being the people to be the authorities on yeah. on that conversation um i will say for from my read of watching this like one of the things that i thought lynch did really well as a man making a movie like this which is a recipe for this to go immediately fucking wrong um there's no moment where like there's layers obviously to the types of trauma that are happening um but Kyle McLaughlin's relationship with Isabella Rossellini is like deeply problematic, obviously. Not great. And because he's you know, it's it's taking advantage of a of a woman who's like suffering sexual trauma and he fucking sees it and then does that. And that's never played for romantic tones in the way that another director one hundred percent would. Where that like that is the type of sequence where like oh he's the hero who comes in and the fact that they start hooking up is like a good thing and there's no moment in this no. movie where you think Kyle MacLachlan is a good guy. It's and pretty I, explicitly laid out as horrific, especially toward the end of the film. Yeah, and um, and that I think is such an expert and such a necessary thing to make this movie not a fucking travesty because. Uh, it's a narrow line dividing this movie being a masterpiece, which I think it is, and this movie being a, a absolutely devastating piece of shit. Um, and and that would have nothing to do with just, like, the, the tonal stuff. Like, he just could have gone really wrong, and I think his ability to sort of navigate the tone of those moments is so essential to that. Yeah. Um, one last thing before we move on. Uh, Chris, you've been surprisingly silent about Laura Dern so far. Uh, would you like Your the floor? Your wife. <laughs> I, I just, there's nothing that needs to be said. She speaks for herself. Um, I, she I do think is fucking going for it, especially <laughs> down the stretch of this movie. Oh my god! You get the first look at the Dern face, uh, which the like, Dern hysterical, Stern? hysterical crying uh, or screaming. Laura Dern is just like one of the best in Hollywood at hamming it up. Um, yeah, excellent stuff. I will actually say so. This I, I think, is, uh, Chris. Have you seen Certain Women yet? No. Okay, oh so my Zach, god! I know you saw this recently, like 
yeah. near when you saw Blue Velvet. How was the experience of the sort of the two poles of Dern? Because I feel like that's about... The, it was the, the best of Dern. It was the worst <laughs> of Dern. <laughs> it really is. Chris, I'm very excited for you to see that movie because it really is like... The, the antithesis of this Dern, and I don't mean that in a negative way, I just mean it is. Yeah. It could the, not be less this Dern. I mean, th- this Dern is like the 1950s. <laughs> stop saying this Dern? <laughs> <laughs> Never. Um, Laura Dern in this movie. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Her name is Mrs. This Dern. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is is just such the kind of sheltered daughter of the suburbs in the 1950s. Yeah, she is so like goody two shoes picture of perfection, and you know it, it's a pretty clear polar opposite to Isabella Rossellini's character. Um, but I think Laura Dern plays it pretty well um, as far as the antithesis of the kind of, you know, sensual other in in Kama Glockland's gaze. Yeah. So. All right. Anything else? No. Good. Good to great film. Yep. Great film. Um, we are going to go back in time one year. For this next movie, uh, for the color purple, directed by Steven Spielberg, um, that won Whoopi her first Oscar, correct? I believe that happened for this. I know movie. she was nominated. I think that movie got shut out. I think it was. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, it got yep. shut out completely. Got nominated think, for a bunch. Shut out. I think completely. it still holds the record for most nominations without a win. Gotcha. Um, so, Chris, you want to start us off with this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the story of a black girl slash woman and over the course of 40 years of her life um, in the early 20th century um, and kind of follows along uh, through a traumatic childhood to a traumatic giving away to... Uh, a husband to a traumatic marriage and then yeah kind of just you kind of live with uh this woman throughout all these years and kind of um experience her life over the course of that time and uh turns out doesn't seem like a good time no uh so this is based off of the this same named book by Alice Walker that came out in 1985. So it was a, a very 82. quick 82. 82 sorry. Um, so it was a very quick turnaround as far as like major book into major motion picture. Um, and so I, I had never seen this movie. Um, I had heard a lot about it as far as like the, the kind of Oscar buzz. I'd heard that Whoopi was incredible. And, and when I went back to it, I was kind of, like pretty terrified about Steven Spielberg making a movie with an all black cast in the mid 1980s about how phrase would be handled and stuff like that. But I guess it had been long enough since I had read the book in like middle school that I'd kind of forgotten the, the actual plot of the movie. 
and it's it's less so about that and more so about just the the trials and tribulations of Whoopi's character, um, which is a way better focus for the movie than a examination of what the time like was for anyone other than this one specific person. Um, I liked it. It was too long. There are parts I would cut. There are parts that were uneven, but overall I, I, I did like this movie. Yeah, I'd say for a two and a half hour movie, it didn't feel like it dragged. And I was also pretty apprehensive going into it, not sure what to expect. And obviously, like, it doesn't set you up thinking like, oh, this is going to be a fun romp or anything. And it definitely wasn't. But I never felt like I was. But uh, but she learns how to drive a car. (laughs) (laughs) I, I never felt like I was disinterested. And and a lot of that credit goes to Whoopi's portrayal of of the character because that's um but your enjoyment of this movie kind of hinges on caring deeply about her character yeah i thought whoopi was the saving grace of the movie um i thought otherwise it was one of the most tonally off movies i've seen in a long time um has some jarring tonal shifts i think uh a, a big part of that has to do with the music which a lot of love for Quincy Jones, but uh, as as Alice Walker described it, it feels like that music belongs in Oklahoma and doesn't really <laughs> fit with the uh, the vibe of the film. I think I, that was kind pl- of the the '80s thing in general, which is these big sweeping orchestral totally. scores, think, no matter what. Yeah. yeah, and it just shouldn't it, have been the case for this. It was one hundred percent not what I was expecting from Quincy Jones. Yeah. Um, I think also uh, it's it, worth noting that Alice Walker didn't like this movie, um, didn't like the adaptation of it, and has kind of vacillated back and forth with gradients of that. At first, she was very opposed to it and was really upset with the process and then has gone back and forth and said, okay, it's different than the book. But um, that's not a unique thing, obviously, that, that a director doesn't – I mean, a, a writer doesn't like an adaptation of their, their – uh, film and that's not immediately an indictment of it i do think it carries a different weight when you're talking about a book by a uh, female writer of color uh and an adaptation by a male uh, a white male i I think there's a different context that comes into play and i think that has to do with uh, that that i think is what comes into play the most for what threw me about this movie which is that i felt like um spielberg for all his strength as a director part of what makes him such a effective storyteller is his ability to sort of like um, craft this narrative investment uh, that the audience has in his stories and his ability to sort of like create narrative momentum and to bring the audience along with him along for a story and stuff like that. And, and that obviously works wonders in a lot of movies, especially ones that aren't based in reality, but sometimes ones that are in this case, I think what you end up with is his approach to a lot of moments of specific sort of, horrific trauma as um, moments of character development and moments of sort of helping the plot along rather than um, dealing with the weight and impact of those actual moments of trauma in a careful way. And that read is really problematic to me and, and was something that was really jarring and, and really threw me about this movie. And, um, I, you know, the color purple comes up a lot as an example of like why uh, it we need to think about who are who are the people who are telling certain stories and not that, that hard and fast has to be like a person who identifies the same way that 
the story the the core people within the story identify um but but it is an example i think a pretty clear example of where a creator tried to make um a story that wasn't universal universal rather than trying to finding ways to sort of create investment in a more personal and more uh, insular story and and i think that a different director could have potentially done that or Spielberg at a different point or with a different agenda could have done that, but I don't think it worked here. And so that's my take on the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give, I don't want to give too much credit to, to Spielberg for like making a good movie or anything like that. But I think it could have been a a lot worse given the, the time and and space that it it took place. And um, yeah, I I don't have much familiarity with the, uh, with the origin text. And um, so I, I can't really comment on that, but I there weren't a lot of times where I was like sitting, uh, like tonally, yeah, there are a lot of weird things. Like the, there are some things that are played for comedy that feel like they definitely shouldn't have been played for comedy. Um, but also, I, I think a lot of that did have to do with the music, where I I wasn't watching Danny Glover like chase down Whoopi's sister and like thinking this is comedic this is i was thinking this is fucking terrifying um and maybe the music makes it feel not that way yeah um, the music that, the music by was, far the worst part of this whole thing totally and that that scene i thought was actually like a, a situation where that that felt very menacing in the it, despite yeah. like the sort of like playful overtones of it um, I think I mean, what threw me more about the Glover thing was the inconsistency with how he was portrayed, where there were moments when he was when he wasn't in the act of abusing, where he was displayed purely as a comedic character. And that was a tough turn from like child rapist to comedic character so, with not enough in between. So I I think, at least for me, that worked because it it kind of showed that this character was so personally weak that he couldn't do shit on his own and the only way he was keeping this life together was by you know having the dominant quote unquote status in the relationship where he was so weak that he couldn't cook a meal he couldn't dress himself he couldn't do this and the only way that he could have any sort of life or farm or or subsistence was by you know basically take, taking Whoopi captive as his wife for this whole time. Um, I think that's. I think that narrative could have totally worked. What I didn't like is that it wasn't that they displayed him as... Well, like, I think there's a way to sort of have that those two sort of... That dichotomy of the, like, yep. his power position and how he sort of... Uh, and then his weakness yep. in a way that doesn't require... I feel like the weakness was almost always played for comedy. And it, I feel like if there would have been a way to do that where... The weakness was played with more weight as well, so it wasn't just like horrible monster. Ha ha! He's too drunk and can't handle his liquor and is a fucking you know like. And it it felt just inconsistent and not in a way that told me more about him as a character. In a way that made it feel like we weren't accounting for the weight of his transgressions in a in a su- serious enough way. I, yeah, I guess I'm. I just read it differently as like it's. This isn't levity. This is. This isn't like taking the piss out totally. of a character. The, this is like the most, like the worst thing that this person would think uh, is if people were laughing at him um, about his his situation, about his just total uselessness. Um, I just saw his and, weakness. Yeah, 
so I mean, the, yeah, I mean, I, the, there are like some weird. So uh, there, it goes overboard at times, like with with Suge Avery like throwing the the dishes at the wall, like that's a little extra on the comedic side. And then there's the scene where like he's trying to uh, light the the oven and like yeah. pulls out the kerosene and like it cuts back and whoopie's gone um like that's a little over the top but the for the most part like the times when i was like i wasn't personally laughing at danny glover because he's being funny on screen i'm watching characters within the film laugh at him because he's totally inept yeah yeah, I mean, for me, it was just him being a weak human that just had a position of power. Um, that That's what I took from it. And yes, it's hammed up at times, but that really wasn't something that, you know, didn't work for me. I, I, I honestly think m- most of my issues with this came from, like, like you said, the music, which I think is just, just horrifically tonally off. And then a little bit too much hamming it up at points. The, the one thing I'll say is, like, you know, Oprah's character's arc um, throughout this, you know, th- there are... So she ends up having to be a, like, a made to be a maid after she's released from prison for this terrible woman. And the woman can't drive, and that's always played for laughs, but, you know... It, it does a pretty good job of showing the kind of, like, false benevolence of, of rich white people in that time, where... Totally. Uh, where, you know, it's like, oh, I'll let you have Christmas off, you guys are so nice, this is such a lovely family, and then when one thing goes wrong, it's like, you're trying to beat me, you're trying to rob me, I need you to take me home. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, thought that scene I, was pretty good. Yeah, I I was... I came into this movie based on what I had heard about it, expecting to have a lot more issues with the racial politics of it. And I actually felt like the, for the most part, like expecting a thing like that of like, yeah. Oh, and these are the good white people in yeah. that situation. Which, yeah. There's no spoiler alert. Nope. There are no nope. sympathetic white characters. And, there and are so very few white characters. At I all. thought that that was well handled, whether that was a translation thing, whether that was something that was maintained, whether that was just, by the nature like that is something that i thought worked my issues were almost entirely with the gender politics and with the sexual politics of the movie and i thought those were the areas that were more mishandled um and in situations like that like i thought that the story that it was telling was fantastic and it was just the tone like there was a little too much of within that oprah story you know when you have her giving the monologue about uh how like all those people talked harpo into abusing her and then she abused him back and then it like turned into this like fundamentally abusive relationship and she's giving that monologue and it's intercut with like him talking to his dad about like no it was a donkey that hit me and it's like a comedic scene and it was this very like totally it took away from this like one incredible performance by oprah in that sequence and two like one of the sort of central tenets of this movie and one of the core things and it just felt like a total like a miss in the in the interest of sort of like giving the audience something easier to hold on to um, and I felt like it was the same thing with like the Oprah storyline on the whole, which again I thought was one of the more sort of moving parts of the story that had this undercurrent of like, oh, she's like gonna lose it again, and it was like a little played for laughs, and then there'd be these horrible consequences, and yeah. then it'd be a little played for laughs, and then these horrible consequences, and that in, that tonal inconsistency 
is something that I think there's a version of that that could work. I just don't think this was it. And, and I may be laying that at the feet of like Spielberg because of all this context surrounding it. And maybe that's not the case. Maybe it was just the direction that he happened to do. And it's not about his identity. I think there's a decent case. That's what it was. It's hard to not, it's hard to not um, separate though. It's, it's hard to separate those things. Totally. Um, Yeah. I think my, my expectations with things like that were so low that I was, I don't want to say totally. pleasant, pleasantly surprised because that's uh, that's not necessarily what it what it was, but it was. Um, it, it always felt weird that Spielberg directed this, but I, I never felt like he went horribly wrong with it. Yeah, you also. It is also as we've talked about many times, like essential to think about the time period and what was the norm then, and and how this measured up against that, and and the fact that this was a representation of like domestic abuse within communities of color which was not a thing that was getting Mm -hmm. shown at that time is really significant and there's a reason that this movie still carries a lot of weight in a positive way for a lot of folks right so like that we we shouldn't be dismissing that out of hand and i don't mean to by criticizing the movie i think there's when you have that when you have uh whoopi's portrayal of like a victim of abuse Whoopi is um, so good in this she's unbelievable i mean it's it is such an unbelievable performance front to back um, even in the midst of like for me yeah. moments where I thought were totally off, I felt like she was so unbelievably locked in throughout. Um, so it's you know it's a it's both of those things, right? You have the the simultaneously the like oh the display of a like uh, same sex relationship to an extent, but you also mm-hmm. have the story about how like Steven Spielberg was really resistant to like sexualizing that too much and letting that be like too lesbian, and that that was a thing that Alice Walker had an issue with, and so like. You know, you can have all those things simultaneously. So I think there's reasons that this film is really significant, and there's reasons that the, there are really positive aspects of this film. And there's also like I think lessons to be learned from the film, and things that just like are a consequence of when you put a mainstream white male director in charge of a story that is not about white men and is specifically about an experience that is decidedly not a white male experience. You risk a lot of things whether or not they're going to come true you risk um a lack of translation of that story and i think some of that came true here. yeah i don't disagree with any of that um and part of me thinks like okay what if they had put off that adaptation until more recently and been able to put that together with uh with an auteur who had more uh, alignment with that experience and then um at the same time, yeah. it's it's kind of like a touchstone like moment in right. the mid nineteen eighties. You don't get don't Whoopi's wanna, career. Yeah. Don't right. take that yeah. away. So, yeah, I I do think Nate, you are like I am specifically allergic to a lot of things. You are specifically allergic to that like eighties nineties kind of style of heartwarming strings over all scenes whatsoever. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, Except for he got gay. A perfect film. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I don't have a ton more to say about this, other than uh, I think Nate Nate or Chris, one of you two texted me and just said, like, wait, Danny Glover's just evil? You know? And and seeing and seeing him in this um, this role, because, you know, he's been so many beloved characters over the years that seeing him in this is just like, wait, what, what the fuck? 
like yeah it's pretty wild we don't and like this guy not having much uh knowledge of the actual plot and characters of this movie beforehand i kind of come into it thinking that he was a protagonist in this um and well, <laughs> no yeah, could, nope. could not could not have been more wrong uh and it's like pretty immediately uh shown oh when he when he lusts after a 14 year old in the first like three yeah. minutes of the movie it's not great is that what tipped nope. you off <laughs> it is what tipped me off you nailed it yeah um yeah it is I, I will say I enjoyed this movie. I don't think I'll revisit it ever again, but I'm I liked ha- I liked watching it. Yeah. So. Um a movie that I liked watching even more takes place yep. in a submarine. It's called Crimson Tide. Tony Scott run me over with a submarine. <laughs> Tony Scott drowned me in the compartment of a submarine to save it from sinking. This man uh, could do no wrong. Uh, I, I honestly, I don't think I've seen a film of his that I didn't like. I, I I've seen at least five or six of them. Big deja vu, Stan. We got here. I, I've deja never vu seen that. Sucked. <laughs> you guys watched that without me on it my is suggestion. A very fun movie. <laughs> it is not good. Um, but I, I mean, absolute mastery of creating and building tension um and and maintaining that tension uh from a directorial standpoint just uncomfortable camera angles uh elite sense of space um i I draw some comparisons to uh unstoppable where like just using this kind of limited space to build a very small world in which these characters inhabit and you kind of feel like you're there. Um, also probably helps that I watched this on a plane um, <laughs> with a little additional claustrophobia. Um, but the, the idea of like when specifically when the sub is uh, diving and rising, like you get these kind of tilted camera angles and, you do kind of feel like the, everything's a little bit askew, and and obviously when they, they don't have a, just elite conception of uh, of like a a tension filled moment where they just don't have any power, and if they go below a certain like they exact depth, then <laughs> then they're all dead. Uh, just unbelievable stuff. Yeah, I, um, and not to mention just like. Denzel at like his Denzeliest, just excellent performance, and I I feel like we talked about Gene Hackman as an actor on this uh, podcast. Yeah, we a talked about times. the conversation, but like specifically about like what we think of him as, and I think we arrived at the coach from the replacements. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, really, really excellent performance as a gigantic asshole in this movie. Yeah, you, you know what the MVP of this movie is. Uh, water pressure sweat <laughs> big, big big sweaty movie everyone in this movie has just beads of sweat dripping down their face with like red and blue and green reflections of submarine like like lights <laughs> going I, I really i hope I, I would love to see a like a 
uh, behind the scenes of this of like if they were like kind of dripping towels over their heads before takes. <laughs> yeah. No, shit. I'm so guessing they were in a fucking trailer that was 95 degrees. <laughs> probably true. Um, yeah, this this movie is such a masterclass of like uh, uh, translating something that is not inherently cinematic um, into a cinematic form, right? And the, the way in which he like provides you the geography of the sub early on so that you are aware of the geography that characters need to sort of travel through and where characters are in relation to each other and how long it takes them to get to each other and the way he like provides the audience with the breadcrumbs of like okay here's the screen that is going to be the signifier for this depth information that you're going to need to know and that's going to be the marker that we keep cutting back to when we know this thing and here's the procedure for the the procedure uh, is so good so we're going to run the procedure of the launch codes. It's like a, I mean, it's it's literally like watching somebody repair a car. Like you see this sort of like the whole process laid out and then do the drill as a way so that when they do it the next time at a high tension moment, they don't have to say, and now he needs to send the codes to me <laughs> so that I can, like, because it would completely kill the moment. There's so, so much show don't tell. The, the yeah. wrong version of this but, is Air Force but One. I, <laughs> But, right, totally. But I also think like it's it's show don't tell, but it's also telling earlier so that you can show later when it but, matters. But via like, showing, like yeah. the, totally, it, it's it's not someone just like it's not a walk and talk really. It's, no, it's, but it is. It, it's like a it, it's the more like we're holding your hand through it this first time, yeah, and then you're getting the the full speed version later, right? It's the test run. You're literally going on the drill so that you can have the sort of realized thing and have all that tension sort of fully mount i i'm such a sucker for and this will come up with another gene hackman related thing uh in a future episode but um like for lingo and for being brought inside the sort of like terminology of a world that you don't have access to regardless of what it is i have no interest in being in the military no interest in serving in the military on a submarine <laughs> like that's that's pretty bottom of the barrel in terms of what military things i would be interested in doing bottom uh, of a literal barrel in yeah. the bottom of the ocean and and this makes you feel inside of that experience in that way that like uh it it immerses you without uh hitting you over the head with it without hitting you over the head with the information but also like making you feel welcome within it and which feels like a weird way to talk about a thing about a mutiny on a sub but it does like you feel like you're inside the story not an outsider looking in but what about a double mutiny double mutiny that's that's the best kind of mutiny um yeah i mean it's obviously claustrophobic just by the nature of it being on a submarine you know um and i didn't think that the the kind of um plot like the plot points that came up felt too fake you know there are you know it 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 didn't have the mountain between us problem yeah um and a little like could we maybe chill like yeah (laughs) what if what if we just chilled (laughs) the fire in the kitchen is the one of those but like it wasn't it wasn't played for like 
reason to get to this thing. It was more just like a character development thing and understanding right. how fucking insane Gene Hackman's character right. it, is. It was not the linchpin yep. moment of the movie that allows for it. Right? wasn't yeah. Chekhov's kitchen fire. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what percent of people do you think understand that Gene Hackman is the villain of this movie? I would say 80 I, to I 90. Think, yeah, I think... You think... Aside from aside from a, a number of submarine captains, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's the demographic you might lose on this movie, um, or people who have like nuclear codes and and really just want to fantasize about using them. Racists you, are probably not big on Denzel's yeah. character, I would guess. That, so that was weird. I will say it. Like, this is going to sound weird, but it felt unnecessary. He was already unlikable in that moment. It just felt like... In- I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to push back on this a little bit. I think the I was surprised a little bit that this movie showed a little bit of an advanced understanding of microaggressions, or at least, like, accidentally stumbled ass backwards into them. Um, there, There is, like, a there are a couple of weird moments toward the end of the film that kind of step on that a little bit. It, it just but- goes so, so hard at the end. Yeah, where it kind of sets it up very quietly, where yes. like it's easy to pick up, but which felt very effective. That, yeah, that, that I, really... I think the scene setting was awesome. I think the yeah. end of it was poorly written. Yes, agreed. Yep. I honestly it, it hurt my enjoyment overall of the film. That yeah, the, the kind of like end of the. I mean, on, one, on... one you get the like very overt racism toward the end, and then yes. you get like the weird redemption the the uh, redemption moments. arc was the thing that i i didn't uh, like that, the most I, yeah just not just miss, miss me with didn't, that yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely dude almost fucking nuked russia off the map <laughs> and is a deeply racist human no fucking thanks. yeah j- just end the movie when they get back to the surface you don't need the yep, the postscript where the white guy finally it. gets a redemption yeah. Where you know they that, can, I mean, that was, wait, they can the bond about horses obligated yeah the contractually obligated gene hackman redemption arc yeah um, I oh I, oh I do have an Odenkirk. Sorry, we're not gonna get rid. Of oh that yep yep yep, yep yep oh yeah, <laughs> yeah damn it. All right, we have we all have the same Odenkirk. God yeah. damn it. Um. Anyway, um, I think I even texted you, fuckers. Yeah, about you, this one. you you one hundred percent did. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it was uh. I think it was an obvious one. He's, it's just like well, he's, I, he's uncredited, right? Yes. Yeah I, I, yeah, I watched this at the at the beginning of of the podcast cycle, so it's been over a yeah. month since <laughs> I've seen this movie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Tony Scott can just like fucking crank up the tension and show conflict better than just about anyone. Yep. So, and this movie, I mean, when Denzel and Gene are just yelling at each other, it is. So good, fucking Oscar-worthy yelling. <laughs> I, I don't know who I was more terrified of. Yeah, and I mean we we shouldn't definitely Hackman. We, yeah. we shouldn't I, dismiss yeah. uh, Gandolfini and Mortensen in this movie, who are also excellent. Um, Excuse me, and the boy Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn, yeah. Sorry, uh, <laughs> getting getting killed by a <laughs> tough. Tough look for my Steve. <laughs> Getting killed by water. Ugh. Water pressure. <laughs> Coming up. Uh. <laughs> uh. 
Yeah, so let me write down Jason Robards as uh, yeah. the <laughs> obvious Odin Greg. <laughs> uh, anything else? I think we've talked about other Tony Scott movies on this pod with Unstoppable, but um, I mean, this movie yeah. kind of follows the 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 trend of what he was great at, and I, it works really, really well. So, yep. Yeah, I'm gonna have to rewatch it, but because I've. I've seen Top Gun like 75 million times, so it's hard to like evaluate the two films against each other. But on first watch of Crimson Tide, it hopped ahead of Top Gun for me. I think it's tighter, you know. It's Unstoppable's the top of my list. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, un- Unstoppable's ahead of both of those. Okay, okay, right. cool. Yeah. I, I, I actually think Crimson Tide is my current. That's. I, that's I. I assumed I had the controversial take there. I think that's a completely oh. reasonable thing to think. Crimson <laughs> yeah. Tide is better. Well, so I just I, I'm more attached to. This a- actually, no, I'm a I big uh, taking of Pelham one two three guy myself. I I will say it's that's a movie that uh, is infinitely damaged by the fact that it is a movie? totally fine sequel to a great film. Like it's <laughs> that movie exists. And the original is great, and so it just is is whatever. But it's actually it's not bad. Yeah. Um. All right. Do you want to go to Chris's favorite movie of the round after this? Yeah. That is Creature from the Black Lagoon, a movie which is eighty-one minutes long. And Chris said he took multiple naps during <laughs> micro naps. <laughs> Uh, was yeah, it I mean, w- during uh, during how many micro naps did you take during the real time winching of logs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in what my head, the fuck? in my head, like for many years, this was a short film. Like I, it, I didn't. It is. <laughs> what, no, I, I mean like twenty to thirty minutes. Like I didn't realize that this was like it a full feature length film. Um, I have many many issues with this uh, in terms of. Uh, paleontologically uh what a the structural integrity of a fossil of uh like webbed hand (laughs) and how that kind of was just sticking out of a cliffside what's the Um, uh, what's the age they keep referring to and is that a real thing I don't they remember. Keep saying, like they... since the since the something age, and I think it was something with a D, but I well, don't was, remember. It was before Google, so I'm sure they just made it up. Um, uh, Devonian period. That is Devonian. A real thing. Yeah, the, that is a real thing. Wow. Yeah, fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> First Kinnaman, now the Devonian age. God damn it! Uh, so this was my suggestion. Um, I had never seen this. I knew it was like a pretty classic 50s quote-unquote horror movie um, that had kind of been a inspiration for a lot of other monster movies um, that came out after it. And it it was kind of exactly what I expected. Um, pretty weirdly paced, but kind of weirdly romantic at the same time. Yeah, um, I I felt bad for the creature, a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, fully fully in camp swamp thing. Yeah, uh, excuse me. He's the Gill Man. Oh, uh, right, of course. Uh, yeah, coming up, man thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I did love how much this is just clearly a dude in the suit. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, it's actually two dudes in a suit. Uh, I was going to say, the, the CGI one, in this movie was kind of tough. <laughs> un, un, underwater Gilman was played by a different person than above water Gilman. Ah, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Gotta say, that dude was mobile for being in that rubber suit underwater. I was yeah, impressed. And, and had to be holding uh, his breath for, yeah. I assume, long periods of time because... Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, so there are some like really impressive cinematic things, and I think some of the underwater stuff looks really good. That was what I was going to say. Yeah. That I thought was uh, certainly like for the time period, for the context. That was the stuff that felt like it sort of like uh, transcended the period. It was like, oh, okay, I can understand why this is a significant film. That's impressive. That looks good. It's hard to make things look good underwater. Um, certainly in the fifties. Um, not everything else about this movie held up. Well, yeah. I mean, it also, like, a huge influence on other winch-breaking movies like Jaws. Totally. Which, <laughs> I will say, one of one of my... Uh, and this is one of those things where you're, you know, you're dealing, obviously, with, like, the... It's funny to think about Jaws as recency bias, but <laughs> but there, there is this element of, like, okay, I've, I saw Jaws multiple times before I saw this movie. So, I faulted this movie for showing the monster too early. Because Jaws does that so perfectly, yeah. and but like Jaws did it by accident goes, too. Yeah. Well, Jaws did it by accident, right? I, I I know that, but also Jaws set the template for that of yeah. right, of, of like the that was like a subversive thing that Jaws did again accidentally. Spielberg been fucking up forever. Um, Spielberg, to, are we sure he's good? Is my take of the pod. Well, I mean, Ready Player One would yeah. uh, tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, it, it was that those moments are always interesting with revisiting movies and especially movies where the the through line from this to the later iterations of it are so clear where like y- you can simultaneously reward it for what it wrought and also uh it kind of hurts the film because of your familiarity with the tropes that this early iteration of the tropes just like kind of don't work as well like the the hand coming up the first time is like oh cool they're being like you know, interesting with this, and the hand comes up the second time, and then the third time. Yeah, I believe it's time. seven. And it's the, <laughs> and it, when it comes through the porthole at like <laughs> minute seventy-five, I was like, I'm fucking out. It's the same music cue yeah. every time, and same scream uh, yeah. from our one female character. Yeah, Zach. Zach, you sent me a wonderful text uh, when I was, I believe, eight minutes into the film. <laughs> Uh, do you remember what you what you said to me? Yeah, I think. Have you ever known earlier on in a movie that the movie would f- uh, fail the Bechdel test? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a real like old Hollywood on a platter type of thing. Yeah, um, I definitely thought in my head that this movie was earlier than the fifties. Um, so I think that actually hurts it slightly more in my estimation. Just thinking about it as a fifties movie, like a part of me thinks it should. You thought it was like a, uh, a contemporary like a, of like I'm a, I'm a tropical. It was like thirties, forties. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I will say uh, a fun fact that I didn't know about this is this: this movie was originally filmed in 3D and was projected in 3D with like early iterations of the 3D glasses. And wow. I would be fascinated to see what this movie looked like in 3D. I'm guessing so, bad. I'm um. sure it's. <laughs> Unlike all those modern 3D movies, which are always great and always improve the film. <laughs> which is definitely why after Avatar they caught on and now every movie's in 3D. That's true. Yeah. Um, I, Avatar did look good in 3D, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, I will say, like, I do understand how this can be an influential movie. Totally. Um, it, it's, it's pretty clear about what it did, how it 
portrayed a creature and its sensitivity and um, like you mentioned King Kong, Chris, the kind of uh, how you can root for the quote-unquote monster in a movie. Um, and I think that works. And like like you said, the underwater shots are pretty damn cool. Uh, plotting, not that great. Plot, not that great. But... <laughs> You could you could literally see the moment when they run out. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we're like at well, minute twenty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you want to try poisoning the water again? <laughs> <laughs> Worked last time. How about we try a shotgun? <laughs> what an idea! I like also the 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 ending of spoilers for the creature from the black lagoon <laughs> um the the ending of you know they've fucking gut shot this creature like 19 times and poisoned him and he's kind of staggering off to die and they aim to shoot him again and the guy's like no, <laughs> no. let him go <laughs> and then the next shot is him dying anyways <laughs> it's like what let what him bleed out instead of putting him out of his misery <laughs> Let him suffer, you fuck. Oh you creature. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, anything else for this this uh this wonderful film? No. Yeah, not not particularly. There's some really great quotes that are worth, you know, uh, if you need something to multitask during and you want to throw this movie on just to like check a box on letterbox you, you'll get some some fun quotes out of it and some like misunderstandings of science and some uh some bizarre like uh seemingly like a substitute teacher trying to convince you that water is cool type <laughs> type lectures and like and you also know. just like every male character trying to convince this one female character to marry the main protagonist yeah well you know the way marriage works yeah <laughs> yeah all right uh and we are on to our final movie which is uh deep blue sea a canonically great film <laughs> uh it stars thomas jane from this movie and nothing else Sure. Uh, nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> sure. No. 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 He's in uh, the like fourth season of Arrested Development as. No, he's in the third season of Arrested Development as Tom Jane. Yep. Yeah. Um, he had a show where he was a gigolo. Ah uh, yes. Hung. He was in Boogie Nights. Hung. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he's in Scott Pilgrim. That anyway. doesn't sound right. Anyway. Oh, I think I think he's one of the yeah he's one of the. Uh, the vegan police or the vegetarian, whatever it is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He is an uncredited vegan police officer. Yeah. <laughs> Shocked it didn't work out. That for is his dude. number one what a, credit on uh, Letterboxd. What a, what a charisma laden actor! Isn't it just Ooh. charismatic? No, charisma laden. Like <laughs> he's he's laden with charisma. Yeah. Um, this movie is about a. A shark research facility in the middle of the ocean. Um, I, I think you got it backwards. It's uh, a an Alzheimer's research facility that just happens conveniently, to have <laughs> conveniently located in shark infested waters. Yeah, um, multiple leagues under the sea. 
Uh, by the way, just like impeccable framing for a film. Like, love the location that they just unbelievable underwater research facility. Let's do it. I'm always in. This, I think, parallel to Crimson Tide, which obviously is like the, the showing you the geography of the of the space is so essential. This movie does such a good job of showing you the geography of the space and then saying, like, fuck it. But you still are attached <laughs> to that geography. So, like, there will still be a scene that's, like, back in an area that they've introduced before. But then there are other things that's, like, there is fundamentally no way that this person made this run with a shark in the water behind them the like like 700 yards like around a corner ll cool j is faster running through waist high water than a shark is at swimming through it this movie's perfect his hat is like a shark's fin this, this movie no is so complaints. bad. It's Fuck so you. Good. <laughs> Get out of here. This is the epitome of a movie that knows what it is and does what it is literally perfectly. Does this have, I have the no best, complaints about this? The best death in like an action thriller of all time. Which one? Uh, yeah, the, all oh, of them. Yeah. Sam, Samuel yeah. Jackson, 100%. Yeah. yeah. See, because I was thinking uh, Stellan Skarsgård uh, getting great. tossed into a the thrown into the, the shark <laughs> throws him and breaks the glass. The, and Michael, the Ra- Michael Rappaport's taunting. like, "What is that?" The shark is taunting. <laughs> I would also say, anytime Michael Rappaport is killed on screen is a, is one yeah, of the greatest deaths of all. Definitely time. into so that with a <laughs> twitchy disembodied leg. Oh. Definitely an homage to Jaws. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I fully agree. Also, like for what this was nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Uh, for nineteen ninety nine, like sometimes the CGI looks oh, fucking horrible, yeah. but uh, sometimes the combination of practical effects and and CGI ends up working for me. Whereas like a lot of those B movies with like sharks in them, just like you cannot get into it because it just doesn't look like there are sharks there. Um, and for me, this one kind of works. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with like, I watched this as a kid and was like, Oh, this looks so much better than things I had seen before. And now I kind of hold that nostalgia for it, but still, I think it, I think it does work. And I, I'm not going to watch this every year. Like I do with like jaws or Jurassic park or something, but it's it's a fun like once every four or five years watch. I uh, I do love that in the test screening they kept the yeah. the Saffron character. Yeah, Doctor Susan McAllister. They kept her alive, and then the audience was like, "Fuck <laughs> <Boo>. no!" <laughs> Let her great choice because she is she. Agreed. I mean, like uh, in a cast full of I, I would say all but one unlikable character. Uh, it, like I'm glad that they killed off most of them. I wish Tom Jane had also gotten gotten bit. I, I think but, LL Cool J was the only one who needed. Yeah, to he was the only yeah. one I was rooting for. Yeah, totally. And he fucking blew up a shark with his oven. So yep, wins a famously all easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, a famously <laughs> easy thing to crawl between multiple levels of an oven. That's how they just don't have anything in between. You he, know? he did the he did I the like. like the, uh, the hand punch thing, but with uh, <laughs> <laughs> with an axe. <laughs> they <laughs> like, just, like, 
they were they were assessing the fact that none of us have probably been inside an industrial oven enough to know for sure whether that little was do they know yeah, jokes on them um yeah i i mean i do think that the uh, obviously like i knew about the samuel L. jackson death before i knew about the before i had seen the film and it's still just one of the funniest death scenes in a movie of all time it's the, so the like hard zoom on his face yeah. <laughs> right yeah. before it happens yeah uh, i think this this is this is the type of movie that i mean this is this is one of those movies that i think just really uh, embodies that like uh no part of this was trying to be a prestige movie no part of this thought that it was anything other than what it was no no uh, excuse me michael rapaport very clearly thought he was in a better movie than he was yeah but the people making the movie yeah. knew what they were doing so and and i think the result is like a a film that is all the camp is exactly where it needs to be all the bullshit is exactly where it needs to be i like you know there's there's it's played perfectly for what it is and i i think when that happens, I consider that movie successful. I'm not going to give it fucking four and a half stars. Yeah. But, yeah. like, but I think that this, like, you could have a movie that was of the same technical quality as this film, and it would be hard for it to be a movie that I like as much because, like, their, their ability to kind of, like, play it out the way that they do and have the right balance of, uh, like, pseudoscience hastily and, explained <laughs> bad science yeah. <laughs> and just like uh, like stuff that's so off the wall like the idea it's smart sharks they decided to do <laughs> smart sharks like that's fucking brilliant Sh- sharks don't get alzheimer's so let's make them even smarter yeah <laughs> so we can take their brain tissue for some dude, reason dude these sharks would be flagged for so many penalties in this nfl season <laughs> They just taunted their way through. <laughs> oh, man. Um, this movie's dumb. It knows it's dumb. I like that about it. I, I also don't think it's a good movie. Um, and I think all of those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um, Chris, as the producer of this show, uh, can you change the opening of this episode from... Uh, Ice cream by battles to the uh, deep blue sea song. <laughs> if you can get me the MP3 of it uh, legally or otherwise, I'll bleep that. Uh, then yeah, I can do that. Okay, perfect. Because uh, that song is just just chef's kiss. Beautiful, <laughs> deepest, bluest. My hat is like a shark's fin. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when people are talking about the GOAT, you know, when they're doing their top fives, it's it's honestly, it's criminal that LL gets left off specifically because of his contributions to Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. Uh, anything else about this movie other than Michael Rappaport so much else, stopped being I, in films? Yeah, I, I think we Just, could talk for hours about this yeah. movie, but I, I don't think we need to. No, I don't think we need to as well. It, it's a done movie. Like, have a drink or two, watch it. You'll have a great time. It's it's fun. It's it's super fun. Yep. Uh, and I think that takes us into our awards for this for this uh, episode. Um, we we all realized that we had one Bob Odenkirk at the same exact time. Uh, so you we, heard it, uh, unless you skipped that part because you know I understand so that. 
No, I wouldn't understand <laughs> skipping through this podcast. I'd understand ending it early. I would not understand why you would skip to the end. Well, they want to hear our, uh, our I just got to hear end. the awards. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's it's James Robards from yeah. Crimson Tide. It, it's the epitome of a, an Odenkirk. It's Jason Robards, by the way. Oh, sorry, Jason Ro- Robards. Who Robards? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Missed an opportunity for that. Um, I I think the only other contender, and it's not a real one. It's just a person who I recognized who was also in a movie is uh, Ida uh, Ida Torturo, uh from The Sopranos in uh, Deep Blue Sea, but she is in the beginning of the movie and then gets off. So it's not really in a. Oh, is she the like the tower? Yeah, she's person? the lady in the tower who gets okay. gets fucking got. Which I coming off the Sopranos was like, oh, uh, must be a significant player in this movie, <laughs> and nope. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chris, do you have a Lakeith? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't have a fun one. Uh, I got a few written down, but I'll just I'll pick one. I'll go with uh, Oprah because she was also in Selma. Gotcha. Uh, Nate, who do you have? Myla Keith was... Uh, Steve Zahn we had. Uh, in, um, yeah, it mine's yeah. Steve Zahn, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, easy, the easy ones were Denzel and Hackman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve Zahn uh, famously murdered to shit in The Good Dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And in Out of Sight and... Was <laughs> out of Sight was that, yeah. Was You've Got Mail technically a... No, because no, I didn't no. watch it. We, we haven't we done just, it on the pod. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've seen it, just yeah. not... I didn't watch it with you guys. Yeah. All right. Um, the Dom Cobb slash Harge Aired Award. I didn't actually think there were a ton of these. Um, I just went with Whips for Viggo Mortensen's character in Crimson Tide. Did we ever figure out why he's called Weps? Uh, I think it's an acronym for what his position is on the sub. Okay. Um, I, I oh, did. Is it, is it weapons? Is he like a weapons guy? I think that so. would make sense. Uh, yeah, I think it was that. It was. Hold on. Yeah, weapons he, officer. He, he did. He did need to like turn the key to like make that shit happen. Yeah, he was the weapons officer. Makes sense. Um, uh, I I had the Gill Man, uh, yeah. from <laughs> uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon. I had Guinevere, because her husband's name is fucking Arthur. So what the fuck are we talking about? That <laughs> name's weird. <laughs> right on. Yeah, that is fair. Um, all right. Uh, I, would, I would also say Michael Rappaport plays. Tom Scoggins, which is definitely a fake name. <laughs> no, known by Scoggs, by the way. Yeah, uh, leading into that, uh, my Rebecca Pigeon is Michael Rappaport for existing and trying to speak in his natural <laughs> accent. Uh, yeah. Nate, who is yours? Um, it could go a couple different ways. Uh, shouts to the Mid-Atlantic uh, accent being fake as fuck and not yeah. a real way that people spoke, so K in the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Uh, I had the Green Knight, um, as I've said on this podcast before, the received pronunciation British accent didn't exist until the 1770s, so... Shut the fuck uh, up, shut the fuck up. 
<laughs> Just a bunch of fucking dialect sticklers. This it's a good thing for people to skip ahead to. I'm glad that they're rewarded with our fucking Insight. nerd ass. Like, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did. I did think Sean Harris had uh, a, a good accent for the time. Like that. That because he called him a, Garwain. Yeah. Yeah, that that would have been. There are a couple A twenty four movies that do a pretty good job of not fucking that up. Like, I'm I'm not a huge fan of The Witch, but that like old New England accent's a pretty good one. Yep. Um, Chris, who do also you have for the Jake Lamada Very Chill Guy Award? Uh, soon uh, to I be think- renamed. Yeah, I think we're going to rename the category the Frank Booth Award because it's Dennis Hopper, who is also Frank Booth. I need to play Frank Booth because I am Frank Booth Dennis Hopper. Uh, Nate, uh, any objections? Absolutely not. It is Honestly, if you object, I, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> All right, so henceforth, this will now be the uh, Frank Booth Very Chill Guy Award. <laughs> Is it wait just just for clarification? Is it the Frank Booth Very Chill Guy Award, or is it the Dennis Hopper Memorial? I am Frank Booth. Uh, we can. Sh- well, that's the name of it. We can shorten it to the Frank right. Booth Perfect. Uh, Very Chill Guy Award. Yeah. Um, a, a character who's introduced by calling. Uh, I forget exactly what he says, but I think he calls her just like a big piece of shit or something. <laughs> Fucking piece of shit. (laughs) It's a lot. Uh, Nate, uh, James Wood's biggest piece of shit award. (laughs) Boy, were there some contenders. Yes. A lot of options. I'm going to go with Pa Harris, um, Seeley's dad, uh, revealed to not be her biological father, but uh, rapist fucking piece of absolute shit father in The Color Purple. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I took Gene Hackman in Crimson Tide, uh, a man who, if left unchecked, would have caused the nuclear fallout to end all nuclear fallouts. Uh, and I'm gonna go with Doctor Susan McAllister from Deep Blue Sea, who for leaving her family so that they could leave their child alone on Christmas. <laughs> that's a great poll nicely done um shouts to danny glover and kyle mclaughlin and and frank booth once again for getting out of that round unscathed yeah <laughs> i mean he's clearly a piece of shit but also he didn't almost cause the destruction of the known civilized world yeah uh, just barely um so now we're to the Dutch Boy slash Geostorm Award. Uh, and mine is building a Alzheimer's research facility in the middle of the, <laughs> like, under the middle of the ocean. Um, which just seems like a impractical place to put it. It uh, would be impractical if it wasn't for my Dutch Boy, which is Smart Sharks. Yep, that's mine as well. <laughs> and enhancing the intelligence of sharks. Yeah. <laughs> So, joke's on you and your very reasonable Dutch boy, because our dumbass Dutch boy necessitated it. But also the, uh, like, vis- the visible firing of synapses on, uh, <laughs> in microscopes. 
Um, I would. I will also say uh, until uh, the lovely article in which um, Dennis Hopper explained which drug it was supposed to be because he knew because he tried them all. Uh, the gas canister was a candidate for this, um, but but then that was cleared up a little bit too much by by Hopper and his fucking rampant drug use. Um, I would also accept a a sad hand job in this category <laughs> as a plot device. <laughs> Uh, what about a, a sash you won't take off during sex? <laughs> yep, also also accepted. Um, any any other uh, any other Dutch boys? Uh, how about I mean, a, like, a severed ear as a plot device? Yeah, I, I was thinking a uh, fossilized webbed hand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just hanging out and and winches. Winches, definitely <laughs> winches. Non-working uh, winches. Uh, 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 like a poison gas, a bug spray, <laughs> an underwater poison gas bug sprayer might be a candidate. Oh, my God. Um, all right, I think we're just going to F. Gary Gray now, right? Yep. Yes. All right. Um, do you each want to go through our Fs, or do you want to go through everything all at once? We've always done it where everybody does their full one. And not- as we know, that's the way we've always done it is the best logic <laughs> for continuing something. All right. Uh, so my F is Crimson Tide. Um, there are scenes from that movie that I just absolutely fucking love and could rewatch over and over. Uh, my Gary is Blue Velvet because I'm a fucking weirdo. Um, my Gray is... Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I I think my law-abiding citizen is Deep Blue Sea. Jesus oh, fuck fucking you. Christ. Fuck what the fuck is you. wrong with you? You're a piece of shit. I love, I love you both. <laughs> I, I, I love you both. Don't fucking I'm look sorry. at me. I, Don't fucking <laughs> look at me. I wasn't expecting to get that heated up about smart sharks, but I guess that's just where we're at. Okay, Zach, tell tell us which one is supposed to go next. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> Don't fucking look at me. <laughs> All right, Nate. All right. Um, I will caveat this by saying. That, nope. Uh, shut up. Go. Shut up. Go. Shut. Shut your fucking mouth. Go. <laughs> Say the words. My F is fucking deep blue sea, motherfucker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my Gary is the Green Knight because I'm very excited to live with that movie for for a long time and and rewatch it a bunch of times. Um, and my Gray is the color purple, and I am refraining from using my law abiding citizen on this round because I didn't feel like ascribing, um, I mean, consigning Whoopi Goldberg to eternal damnation. <laughs> fucking harsh. Um, <laughs> I did it. I didn't do it. I could have. I didn't. Uh, yeah, my my F is Crimson Tide. Uh, my Gary is the Green Knight. Um, I think that's a good movie with some staying power. I think that's a good like rewatch. Um, I I think uh, Mulholland Drive kind of kicks uh, Blue Velvet down out of that out of contention for that for me. Um, and then my Gray. Uh, much like the uh, 
a very mean uh, paleontologists. Uh, I'm taking a shotgun to <laughs> creature from the Black Lagoon. And no, uh, no law-abiding citizen for you either. No, <laughs> fuck that. Yeah, I'm I'm leaving Deep Blue Sea untouched. Um, yeah. Any uh, any final thoughts on uh, on this color palette round? We we didn't talk about the cinematography on basically any of these movies, but The Green Knight, and I'm, you know, deeply saddened and offended by that. I'm pretty sure I mentioned a lot of cinematography in uh, <laughs> Crimson Tide, but. Is it uh, is it possible to roll back to James Woods so we can throw Zach in for including Deep Blue Sea? As yeah, you fucking citizen? piece of shit! <laughs> Bump Don't Ackman fucking down look us. at me. Um, I, I yeah, do I think, want that I as think... like a, a a drop in our episode. If you can just <laughs> just cut the the Frank booth. Don't fucking look at me. <laughs> Um, um anything yeah, else? I uh no, I think I think colors are cool. I'm I'm a fan of color. And sometimes a lack of color. Looking at you Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um Um so next up the next batch of movies we're gonna be doing is a crossover pod. Very sorry. We're, we're coming up in the world. Uh and we are going to be watching hockey movies to uh, partner with Brews and Bruins. I'm very impressed that you know the name of my other podcast. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I see you tweet sometimes. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you have those movies in front of you? Uh, I don't, but I could pull them up real quick. Because <laughs> uh, I do. I just wanted to shame you for it. Uh, so we have ah, okay. Ice you Guardians. fucking piece of shit. <laughs> uh, we have Ice Guardians. Uh, we have Slapshot. We have Young Blood, Indian Horse, and Miracle. Uh, extra credit for all of the D two movies. Those will I mean, probably. Be... I like. Th- I like that you're calling it all of the D two movies, which is one movie. That <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. Um, because we will probably be referencing those multiple times throughout the. You lost podcast. it for me, gonna. No, you lost it for yourself. Let's go shake their hands. We'll be litigating the existence of uh, the Junior junior Goodwill Goodwill Games. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many lines from that movie that uh, like pop up in my head at random moments. And then I say them out loud and I realize other people don't have the same connection (laughs) to that movie. So like when I like someone says the word flying or someone's going fast and I go, Luis Mendoza, he can <laughs> really fly. And they're like, what? <laughs> and that's just the world we live in. Triple D glove side. You know, All right. I, you know, I, I just, I just miss the times when Iceland was a powerhouse hockey, um, uh, hockey country. I mean Trinidad and Tobago, famously known for, the, <laughs> for their hockey teams. I just miss the good old days when you could have a huddle on a hockey rink, switch into goalie pads, <laughs> and then as an elaborate trick play to then pull off a knuckle puck. After switching actual uniforms at halftime, Literal, yeah, right. Yeah. 
It wasn't half- in halftime. It's in a timeout. It, well, also not in halftime because there's no halftime in the, in hockey. Is Show us how I much know you that. know about hockey, you <laughs> fucking yeah, idiot. <laughs> what a fraud. God damn it. All right, now, fucking uh, piece of pre- shit. Preview for for this next episode. I'm going to be a lot of that conversation. Now, now that we have labeled Chris Gear an absolute fraud, I think we should uh, sign <laughs> off. So for this episode, uh, I'm Zach. This was Nate and Chris. Fucking piece of shit. <laughs> and we had a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> See this guy? This guy's a little creepy.